It's my privilege this morning on behalf of Grace Fellowship to welcome Dr. Stuart Scott uh, to our midst. He is here to share a message for men, especially here on this great Father's Day. We are so glad that our fathers are here. Dr. Scott uh, will probably not be unfamiliar to many of you who are actively involved in small group. Uh, I had said in the first service, uh, Dr. Scott was someone that I came to know before uh, he came to meet me. Uh, and I, I also said that my first experience was not the best one because he had a way of coming alongside my hard heart and speaking to it. Uh, spoke most specifically, this exemplary husband was the first exposure that I had. I'd been married more than 15 years before God uh, used him and came along and spoke to my heart about all the broken pieces that I had uh, in my life as a husband. Secondly, uh, many of you have been uh, in small group as you've used this from pride to humility, which uh, God has used powerfully in the lives of untold thousands of people about how God can move us from a place of pride, which is a place of the deepest bondage, to humility before Him. Dr. Scott teaches at Southern Seminary in Louisville. He's been, he has over 30 years of experience in counseling and pastoral ministry, including time served at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, and on the faculty and staff at Master's College and Seminary in the area of biblical counseling. counseling. He is director of 180 Counseling and Education Ministry at the present, as well as serving at Southern Seminary. Scott is an author, as we have said, He's been married for more than 30 years to his wife, Zandra. He's got two grown children, Kristen, Mark, and two grandchildren. Grace, join me in welcoming Dr. Stuart Scott. Thank you, Brian. Well, good morning. That's not the first time I've been greeted with, I, I kind of hate you, but love you. A uh, chaplain came up to me, and my wife was standing next to me at a conference, and he said, did you ever put, did you, are you the one to put together this list of like 30 ways that pride is manifested with an et cetera after it? I said, yes. He goes, I hate you. <laughs> uh, he went for marriage counseling, he and his wife, and uh, the pastor gave him that booklet and told him to circle all of the manifestations of pride that uh, he, he just sees in his own self, you know, through the week. And he said, it was an awful week. He said, I kept circling and circling more and more and more. And he said, I, by the end of the week, I had 27 out of the 30 circled. And he went to the pastor for the next marriage counseling session. He handed him the booklet, and the pastor looked at it, and he says, what is it about the other three you don't understand? <laughs> so, you know, it's an... Some have a, a case, some it's a pretty severe case, but it is a joy to be here. I, I just uh, love this church. I love what God is doing here. I love Brad and Vicki. We, we go way back, and the leadership here, it's just a joy to be here. And then when I think about Father's Day, and uh, the topic that was given me was speak to the men. What does the church and men in the church, what does God have to say to them? I thought... I guess you're dealing with a church that, um, I mean, you excel in that area of small groups, Joshua's men. 
I mean, you meet on Gunpowder Road. <laughs> Makes me wonder what show and tell was like in, uh, in elementary school. Probably like that. Gutting a deer. <clears throat> Well, I, I grew up in the church. Uh, the church is so uh, special to me. Uh, my dad was in pharmaceutical research division. He uh, was also a lay pastor. And so my earliest years, I was involved in church. My dad was uh, the Sunday pastor. And finally, he said, that's what I want to do with my life. My living is to serve God in that area. And so he left the whole pharmaceutical research and went into ministry. And so I grew up in the church. I, I so value that. And God blessed me with a dad uh, and mom who just loved Christ, loved each other, uh, modeled Christ-like behavior, loved Jesus. Um, and seven years ago, he left a note for us. He was dying. And he said, I'm relocating I'm not dead, uh, very much alive. I'm just relocating. That's a good way to think about our, our loved ones who know the Lord and, and go before us. They relocate um, and then wait for us to show up. So it, I, I grew up that way in a church, I, but I was not a Christian. Um, I heard the gospel all the time, made numerous decisions for Jesus, but no conversion. Uh, I just lived for myself. About a week after any kind of decision at camp or whatever else, I was back living for me. Uh, it wasn't until I was 18 that God graced me with repentance and faith to, to trust God and persevere ever since by his grace. Um, and it, it's just a word to fathers as well. All my brothers um, came to Christ outside the home. So faithful fathering doesn't always mean that you will see your children come to Christ in the home or disciple them maybe in the home. It just be a faithful father. And uh, God will save who he will in, in his time. And God has saved each of my brothers, um, one at 40, one at 27, and the other one early 20s. Uh, from growing up in a church and God saving me, then I went on to seminary and the church was so vital to me even then that I was going to quit seminary because it was just about killing me uh, full time, uh, taking all that kind of a load. And um, God in his providence uh, wanted me to stay there but serve in the local church. And a pastor in Fort Wayne, Indiana said, I'm looking for an associate. Uh, you seem to fit the bill. Uh, your, your gifts and talents and everything, and I'd like to hire you. And that was Randy Patton. A lot of you know that name and know Randy. And so I served with him, and he just poured his life, mentored me, and was helping me what the church is about. Uh, growing in the church, uh, serving in the church, ministering in, in and through the church, and reaching out to the lost. And so this morning, as we think about the topic of the church and its call to men... I uh, first want to think through the scene, uh, the scene that's going on. Uh, the scripture talks about what the church will be like in our time. Back in 2 Timothy 3, it says that in the latter days, this is what's going to happen. Men are going to be more lovers of themselves. 
Uh, they're going to be disobedient. Uh, they're going to be enslaved to various uh, sins. They're going to be uh, hateful. Uh, it's just uh, it's a list that's not not encouraging. And then it even says they'll have a form of godliness. They'll go to church. They'll they'll do maybe the right things, but they're void of the Spirit. They're void of the power of God. They're Christianized pagans. That's just not men. It's it's people. And that is so true today in the church overall. Uh, very little life of the Spirit in them. But the current scene, just reading um, just recently, I mean, past week, looking at some of the current stats of what's going on in the scene uh, today, the current scene, um, you just see more and more women, less and less men. More and more women serving, less men serving. And when men are, and I'm saying this generally about the church, not this specific church, but just generally, men tend to fall into one of two ditches. Uh, In their relationships, especially in marriages and parenting, they tend to go over into a passive mode, which has become quite popular today. Be real passive, uh, no initiative, no backbone. There's even gender confusion. There's role confusion. Uh, Just yesterday in the paper was the article on there's two million stay-at-home dads and their wives are going to work and provide and they're they're at home. Just like, what, role confusion, gender confusion, but even in the church, it's one side real passive, not stepping out and being a leader, The other side is, I'm going to step out and be a leader, but it's the wrong kind. It's a domineering, self-centered, insensitive, lording it over and controlling, and that's not what God called us to. So again, just the confusion. And then when you just go into specific homes, just specific Christian homes uh, with Christian parents, just find mom and dad super busy. Hardly any time for relationships. And taking more and more responsibilities, and a lot of times in the home, uh, with children, homeschooling, just, it just gets real busy and busy, and then you find men sometimes just want to check out at night. They want to check out on the weekends. Uh, work hard during the day. I'm providing for my family, but sometimes lacking the character and leadership that God requires. And so this morning, what I thought I would do is when you talk about men and address men, especially on Father's Day, I won't be talking to the women per se, except at the very end, but you almost start at creation. I mean, you have to start right at the beginning, at Genesis, and you have to look at how God made man, what happened at the fall, and then in Christ, in redemption, in the gospel, and in the church, and then when Christ returns. So just a timeline there, sort of the major redemptive theme of scripture and I want to land in the the passage of Titus 2 which talks about men in their own life and in the their families uh, within the church so just starting here with creation Genesis 127 I mean God's very clear in Genesis 127 he created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So he's very clear. 
It's not gender confusion with God. But all through the Old Testament and New Testament, you see roles appear for the men. Four of them, to be specific. Four roles that just keep coming through Old Testament, New Testament, in Israel and in the church. The first is a servant leader. God created Adam, and he's the head. It's mentioned a few different times in Scripture, uh, even in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11. That he is the head, he is to be grow in wisdom, that's knowledge, and then apply it to life. Uh, Lead in with initiative, step forward, step up. Don't be passive or laid back. I tried looking up laid back one time. My wife described me as pretty laid back early on in our marriage. And I went, oh, that's, that sounds like a virtue. <laughs> and I started looking at the, the concordance. Where's laid back? Uh, not in there. Laid out, dead is in there. Um, Slothfulness is in there. Laziness, uh, I'm not finding that they're all synonyms. So don't be laid back, but initiative. Be decisive. Uh, grow in humility. And we're always growing in that, right? It's, we have pride. It's just where is it and how much? It's just growing in humility. And be courageous. Uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 16, it says, act like, ma- act like a man. Act like men. It's only used once in the, in the scriptures, and it just means to be courageous. That's the, the root word of and meaning is uh, be courageous, stand up uh, for Christ and his word, and then personal involvement with the people that you lead. Know them, care for them. So servant leader. Secondly, another role that God calls us to as men is to be a sacrificial lover. Uh, He wants us to love God and love our neighbor. Um, He wants us to be sacrificial, giving, to be gentle, to be considerate. You say, well, you want consideration, talk to my wife, I don't have that. You need to get it. Uh, We need to be like Jesus. Wherever we're not like Jesus, we need to change. Don't accept personality profiles and what uh, nationality you are, that's just not me. We need to become more like Jesus. So kind, uh, a servant, and really self-sacrifice. And that will has inconvenience all over that number two there. Inconvenient. It will always be inconvenient to be a sacrificial lover. Right? It, if, it's, if you worship comfort and ease, if that's a lust or an idolatrous lust in your heart, that'll be one to just say, Lord, help me not to give into that. That comfort and ease sort of goes against being a sacrificial lover. If God were comfort and ease, he would never have sent his son. And there you have that sacrificial initiative uh, for the need of humanity of, for us. And then thirdly, He calls us to be a provider or protector. Provider comes next. Protector. And then you see with Israel, he raised up men to protect Israel. Um, Even in the military, when it comes to the church, in Acts 20, the exhortation is to the leaders there, the men, to protect the flock, to protect the people. And so you have this protector running through courage, boldness, strength, watchfulness. And then finally, a provider. Uh, 
as God in a family relationship, that God provides, he's the ultimate provider, but he does it through means. Uh, it doesn't mean that a wife can't work uh, outside the home or in some way earning money, but the major weight of provision is on the husband's shoulder. Uh, he is to provide for his wife or his children. That is to be diligent at work, uh, personally uh, involved with the people that you are working with, a servant and a seeking to at least have a good and adequate job to make provision, if at all possible. So you just see this. And then you have a sort of a wrapped up those four into a definition of what does it mean <clears throat> to be masculine. Uh, and you have it, it's a pursuit and a possession, and it's of a redeemed perspective. You need to be right with God to really be a man. I mean, to be masculine is to humble yourself and say, I need a savior. I wasn't created to be independent. I was created to be fully dependent on God and interconnected with one another. So to be a redeemed perspective, character, enhanced by qualities, consistent with the distinguishing male roles running through, I mean, just major roles of being that leader, lover, a provider, and protector, all for the glory of God. Now, then you have the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, that's where a man said, God, that's what your instructions are, but I want and I think. I want and I think. There's where lawlessness goes, right? Uh, We think we have a better way. We think we we know better. We're more knowledgeable. We're more wise than God. And at the fall in Genesis 3, man sinned. He broke God's law, a lawbreaker. And selfish, and before you even get a few chapters away from Genesis 3, Genesis 6, everyone's doing, at that point, every thought and intention of their heart was evil continually. Blame shifting. You don't even make it out of the first book of the Bible, of Genesis, without almost every major sin category going on. But God was still gracious in light of that. God, in his mercy and compassion, right at the time of the fall, also promises a Savior in Genesis 3.15. And so the Messiah, he's coming, the Redeemer. And that goes right to the topic of redemption. So you have creation, the fall, and now redemption. God's grace appeared. We see it in the perfect God-man, Jesus, in the Gospels. Uh, We just see he is the perfect man. Be like him. And then looking, when Christ came, he came because man had a great need. The greatest need man has is to be saved from his sin and to be reconciled with his God. And so Jesus, his first message preaching was repent and believe. And so you have the gospel uh, where you have God and his creating man And then man sins, he has this debt of sin he cannot get rid of. And then he sends Christ, he's the law keeper. And Christ takes our sin of those who will believe in him. He takes the wrath of of God on us, the condemnation on himself on the cross. And then he dies, he's buried, uh, rises from the dead three days later and ascends to heaven and he's coming back. And he calls us to believe in him which involves a knowledge, right? A knowledge of the gospel, 
Uh, you have to agree with the gospel. And then trust, personally trust, not in self, but in him alone for your salvation. So that's the, uh, at redemption. And then he starts the church, and he is the foundation. He's at least the cornerstone of the foundation, Christ is. And he, one of the groups that he calls to himself is men. Uh, men who believe. It's one of the groups. And I want us to turn to Titus chapter 2 this morning. There are five groups mentioned in the church there at Crete. Titus is the pastor. Remember, Crete was not your... Uh, actually, I think Crete and uh, the U- United States is looking a little more like Crete. Uh, Crete was known for being uh, lacking uh, truth. They were called liars. Uh, they were called evil beasts, not really caring for people, people treating people like uh, they're inhuman. And then they were lazy gluttons. That was the Cretans. They were liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I think in our day and age, it's becoming a little bit more like that. And so he, chapter 1, the Spirit of God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, addresses church leadership in Titus chapter 1. And then he says there's also false teachers, and look at their character, and what they teach is wrong. And then he comes to chapter 2, and he says, now let's go into the church, and there are groups of people. And, And he starts with application. He starts with, here is the, the character that you, you need to have. You need to be growing in this character. Application. And then he moves on to doctrine behind that application. That's very unusual for the Apostle Paul uh, to write like that. He usually is, sets up, here's the doctrine, and then here's how you live it out. But here in chapter 2, he says, here's how you live it out. And then he moves on, and here's the reason why and the doctrine behind it. Now, five groups of people are mentioned here that was going on in the church at Crete. You have aged men, and we have some of those here. Uh, Round 50 up, it would be called aged in this text. There's aged women that he talks about. There's young married women that the older aged women are supposed to be helping. And there's young men that the older men are supposed to be helping. So young men are like 12 of age, 12 years of age and up until around 50. And then there are servants or slaves at that time in that church. Now, there's an assumption here in this passage. As we're talking about men in the church, there's an assumption uh, that all these men and women that he's being addressed to here are believers, that they're redeemed. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, says this, God's grace is in their heart. They are motivated by the example of Jesus. They are measured by God's holy law 
and have God's glory as their goal. Because you can't do this, you can't live this way if you don't have the Spirit of God within you. And so the assumption is, these are believers, and I'm going to make the assumption that the men I'm talking about today and addressing are believers as well. And so he starts here, because this is all Christ-like character, with the men. Verse 2. Uh, verse 1 says, But as for you, teach which, uh, what accords with sound doctrine. That's uh, in place of or in opposite of the false teaching in chapter 1 of false teachers. Verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness or endurance. Again, this is godly conduct. And the reason for this godly conduct, why he is addressing older men, younger men, older women, younger women, the reason he's doing it is that we might please Jesus and number two, that we would be a light to a lost world. He says in verse 5, verse 8, and verse 10 that you would adorn the gospel by your life. And you know, this is what you usually hear out there. Oh, I know that, Christian. Boy, their life. It denies the gospel. And so he says, no, this is the character that Christ is working in us by the Spirit to help us that we would please Jesus and that the church would grow and would be a true light to those who are lost. And he starts with the older men, and there's six things that he says the older aged men ought to have. Now, we all have our snapshots during the days when you go, oh, there wasn't much self-control. Uh, there wasn't, I wasn't very level-headed on that decision. But these are character traits. These are the movie strip film of your life ought to look like this. Day in and day out, habitually, your life as aged men ought to look like this. First is so, be sober-minded. Early on, it was just don't be given to wine to where you're, you're not thinking straight. Later, uh, it was translated and became sober-minded. Another word, level-headed. You're careful in your thinking and in your actions. You're just very careful. You weigh things through. And I don't mean paralysis of analysis. I don't mean so intent that it takes you years to make a simple decision. But you are careful in your thinking and actions. You're not impulsive. Really, the sober-mindedness and level-headed, actually, uh, this quality sums up the other five. And then he moves on and says, to be dignified. This means to be serious. Uh, when, when it's time to be serious, you can be serious. It doesn't mean you can't laugh. doesn't mean to be gloomy. It just means when you're talking business and you're talking issues with people's lives and in your home, uh, in the church, you're serious. You're dignified. You're not a cut-up all the time. And I, I, know, I know men like that. I, I don't remember if they have a serious moment in their life. That's not the quality here, a Christ-like quality. It's, it's to be dignified. Treat matters appropriately. They can turn from levity 
to seriousness quickly when they need to. Thirdly, self-controlled. Now, this is a, an all-encompassing kind of word, and he uses it again several times in this passage. Self-controlled. It means to be self-mastered. And it's done by the Spirit because it's a, it's a fruit of the Spirit. But it means your desires, your feelings don't master you. So, uh, I want to go, yeah, but it's not wise to do it, and I'm not doing it. I, I like to eat a little bit more. I don't need to eat more, and I need to be a good steward of my body. When impulses, urges, enthusiasm, it needs to be controlled. Self-controlled. Structured and disciplined in your life. 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul said, it's like running a race. Uh, An athlete trains. He's self-disciplined in his training. Uh, One of my former students was uh, on the Olympic team, the swim team. And um, so they, they gold, they got gold uh, over there in Greece and Athens. But he's a sprinter uh, on the swim team. And I just asked him one day in class, I just said, tell us about your regiment. Tell us how, you, I mean, you just do whatever you want. You just play video games all day. I mean, what do you do? Yeah, well, from beginning in the morning Till that afternoon, I mean, he is training, he is swimming a phenomenal amount. His diet, his rest, I mean, it is highly disciplined and structured. You won't find godly people or godly men who aren't self-disciplined. You just won't read about them in church history. Uh, Self-control. And as aged men, we must be self-controlled to help younger men to teach younger men and you ladies are going boy that's good keep saying it you know or your husband yeah but the women are to be self-controlled right there too and so are the younger women we're all to be self-controlled but paul says i run and i run to win he says in first corinthians 9 he's not running to have fun run when he feels like he's i'm running but i'm running to win And then he says, and I buffet my body, and I keep it under subjection, so that after I preach to others, I myself would not be disqualified. That's, I mean, some, I mean, I just thought they struggle with how much time on the computer, how much time on TV, how much time doing hobbies. Just, are we self-controlled by the Spirit's help for the glory of God and to be a testimony of those around us? Then he goes on and says sound, or um, the word there is to be uh, sound in faith, sound in love, and in endurance or steadfastness. The word sound means to be healthy. You're healthy in uh, your adherence to the faith, studying Christian doctrine and truth and the, the scriptures in order to trust God more and to seek to live it out. You're sound and healthy in your love for others, your love for God, practically loving them, not just saying it. And you're healthy in endurance. You're pressing on in difficult circumstances. And I, 
again, I haven't lived as long as some of you have lived, but it seems the longer I live as a Christian, the harder the difficulties and trials get. It just gets harder. Um, and, you know, if we look at God growing our faith, that's probably why. He just keeps growing us. Uh, when students come to Boyce College, they go, boy, this is harder than high school. And then they come to Southern Seminary, and they go, oh, this is harder than Boyce. And then some who go on for doctoral work go, oh, oh this is even harder than the, the master's uh, work. It's supposed to be. That's how you grow. And so as the older you get, they'll just keep going, enduring, persevering. And it says you're sound in that. Uh, you don't give up. You don't seek rest areas all the time. It's just I, God will give me grace, and I keep persevering, and he'll give me wisdom as well. Then he moves on to the women, and I'm going to skip that. Maybe I'll dress that on Mother's Day. (laughs) Let me go down to verse 6. Let's pick up the young men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And, doesn't say that, does it? I'm looking for a list of 20 things. Let me think about young men and all the things that young men are dealing with and facing. Six things for the aged men. One thing for the young men. Wow. And the Spirit didn't miss something there. A redeemed young man, a man who's given his life to Jesus Christ, has to really work hard with the Spirit's help to be self-controlled. It's sort of an all-encompassing quality. As I mentioned already, it means to be have self-mastery. Self-restraint, dependent on the Spirit. And you think of all the areas of rest, exercise, stewardship of time, money, spiritual giftedness, the whole area of entertainment. I'm just hearing more and more guys that are just given over to games or pursuing their own agenda and pleasures rather than, I mean, professing Christians, rather than being self-controlled uh, with their emotions, their time, their diet, the, the sleep, the relationships, everything very self-controlled. And the aged men are supposed to be helping the younger men do this and modeling that. Even yesterday uh, on the news, uh, actually it was, a, it was on the news and an article, a 19-year-old was picked up by the police down in Miami Well, Miami reported, I think it was near Naples. This guy on a motorcycle was clocked at going 150 miles an hour past the police. One policeman said he clocked him at 157. When they picked him up, because he ran out of gas, (laughs) this was his reply. I mean, think about self-control. Honestly, he says, I was just heading back home. Yes, I was speeding, but I did not see the cops that were on the side. At no point did I plan on running from the cops. The thing is, he says, when you ride the motorcycle, you can't let the motorcycle get control of you. And at that moment, the motorcycle took control of me. And I just kept going faster and faster, unquote. 
So blame it on the motorcycle that made me do it. John MacArthur, in his book, Power of Integrity, says, Under the discipline of the gospel, only the disciplined Christian will consistently read and study God's word and then diligently apply it as he allows God's power to conform him more and more to the image of Christ. None other than the disciplined Christian can truly evaluate and effectively challenge the world's culture and value system in the light of the scripture. Simply stated, self-discipline is the willingness to subordinate personal and selfish interests to God's eternal interests. Simply stated, self-discipline is the willingness to subordinate personal and selfish interests to God's eternal interests. And those are decisions all day long. And so as aged men and younger men, pray, Lord, help us to be more self-controlled with urges, desires, passions, enthusiasms. Be structured, disciplined. You don't coast into self-control. You exercise yourself unto godliness. And 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 9, with the Spirit's help. And then he moves in Titus chapter 2. That's the application. All these groups. This is how you ought to conduct yourself in a Christ-like way to please God and to be a testimony to the world. And here's the reason why. Here's the doctrine behind it. Verse 11. For the grace or because the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And he tells Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. This is the gospel motivation that undergirds these people, the people groups, to live this way for Christ. The aged men, the younger men, the aged women, the younger women, and even the slaves here are to live this kind of conduct because of the gospel. And it says the grace appeared. Jesus appeared is who we're talking about there. Grace personified is Jesus. The grace of God has appeared, past tense. Christ came. So grace in in human form, Jesus. And Jesus reaches to all people groups, the groups that were mentioned right up above, The grace of God came, bringing salvation to all men or all people, all people groups. He brought salvation to the older men, to the younger men, to the older women, and to the younger women, to the free, to the slaves. He brought salvation. And this grace, Christ, trains us. So we're in training. Jesus is called in Hebrews 12, the author and perfecter of our faith. So think of that. You have a, if you're a redeemed individual uh, child of God, you have a trainer. Men, you have a trainer. It's Jesus. 
and he's training you. It's the same word used for parenting in Ephesians chapter 6. In the discipline, training, and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up. In the discipline, training, and instruction of the Lord. It's that word, training. The disciplined training. And what our coach, trainer, Jesus, Savior, is training us is two things negative. Don't do these things. Put them off. Renounce a lack of godly reverence. Don't treat God lightly. Don't think you're high and he's low. Secondly, put off all worldly passions. Renounce the worldly passions. And then three things in the positive way. One is for yourself. Be self-controlled. Towards other people, live righteously with integrity and be fair. And thirdly, before God, be godly. Reverence God. So with yourself, as under, under Christ being your trainer, he is training us again to be self-controlled. It just, it's like a, one of the major threads running through the tapestry of this text. Be self-controlled by the help of, your, of the Spirit of God. Don't just let your passions and urges, don't be feeling led. Be led by the Scripture for the glory of God. And then he moves on to sort of the fourth key element of the redemptive theme. Christ is coming back. Uh, Christ returns. Consummation. He says here in the the last few verses in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ is returning. Grace is returning in the sense, grace personified. So the consummation of the church. There's a new, Christ is going to come and he's going to reign. And then there's going to be a new heaven and new earth. And we're waiting for Christ to return, that blessed hope. He bought us, he rescues us, and then that grace, that gospel, that salvation motivates us at the end of verse 14, and that is to be zealous for good works. That's in the home, it's outside the home, Uh, we're not slothful, we're not laid back, we're zealous, zealous for good works. So I want to encourage you uh, men this morning I'm not here to beat you up. Uh, I'm, I'm one of you. Um, and it's how to be encouraged to step it up more this year. As you, if, we, if the Lord tarries and we, he doesn't return in the next year and we're still here, that next Father's Day, uh, even young men, next year, if you're here, that you'd be able to look back and say, whoo, uh, self-control, uh, the Lord helped me really grow in that area. And for you aged men, self-controlled, dignified, level-headed, sound in the faith, sound in love, sound in endurance. And to help you with that, there is a sheet in your note. I guess it's the other side of your notes. It's all a chart. And you're thinking, boy, this looks like homework. Now, that's just the teacher in me. That's because you don't drift into becoming more like Jesus. You don't coast in that direction. Not with your sinful flesh at war and Satan and the world system. 
And so it's applying these truths to your life. And I would encourage you as men that you're able, able to take a chart like that and look in the categories and say, in the area of leadership, what are some areas, what's one thing I can do? If you're married, if you have children, if you're not married, you have siblings, what, what one thing can I do to grow to be a better leader, more like Christ? What about in the area of loving? What about in the area of providing? What about the area of protecting? What about other Christ-like qualities? And then even in the area of qualities for church leaders. And then what about the qualities I just covered in Titus 2? Just where you can put in there um, one thing in each of those groups that apply. I mean, each of those categories that apply. And make it your, your prayer. Lord, help me. And, and be actively working zealously at those areas. Again, to be more like Christ, to please him, to be a better witness. I believe it will help you. It, it helps me to, to look at that, to uh, be, what am I doing? So I just don't get slothful. I don't get lazy. A verse I would encourage you men to memorize is Romans 12, 11. It's a verse that um, encourages me. It, it exhorts me. It says, don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I mean, that's what the church needs. Men who are not slothful in zeal, but are fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. A quick note in, in uh, conclusion here, a quick note for the wives. I want to encourage you to pray for your husbands, but encourage them. Encourage them. And one of the things about um, ladies, uh, you are equal as people, but you function um, differently in the wife category. Before you were married, it was just a sister and brother in Christ if you were both believers. And so you were equal in essence as people, and you were equal in function. He wasn't your leader, and she didn't lead. I just, you were just brother and sister in Christ. But when God saves you and then you marry, then you're still equal as people, but you differ in function. But there are 35 one another's that don't go away. You had them when you were a brother and sister in Christ, and now that you're married, you still have 35 one another's, and there may be a place that you may need to respectfully remind your husband, uh, love him, encourage him, pray for him, and maybe even gently admonish him. And you may even have to get other people involved if he's a professing Christian and is just not living uh, for Christ or want to and is in some sort of sin. But I think the thing I want to say uh, most about for wives, encourage your husbands. I'm counseling a few different married couples and what I continually hear is men who aren't leading say, well, whenever I try to make a decision, she has something to say about it. It's always critical. She would encourage me when I, I make a decision that's right. But anything else is criticism. 
And, and one guy said, oh, she didn't say a word. It's, it, she just shows it. She goes, oh. And he says, I don't want to make any decisions. Part of what God's called us to as men is to lead, to lovingly lead. Not passive, not domineering, a servant leader, get information, make decisions. And she's there to help. She's a companion. But what I'm hearing more and more is women that just keep finding fault with their husbands and their decisions. Please don't be critical. Encourage your husbands. Think of 80% of your time with your husband. How can I encourage him? And he should be thinking the same thing about you. How to encourage you. That's one thing I won't ever counsel. A problem is someone who encourages too much. The one won't be coming in saying, help me, get her her off of me. I mean, she she encourages me too much. That won't happen. (laughs) But, oh, we need it. It's one of the one another's. Just encourage anything that he does that's right. Secondly, with children. Let me talk to the children just for a minute. Encourage your dad, encourage your parents, anything good, anything right that they're doing, encourage them, be thankful for them. They're imperfect, and one day if the Lord tarries and you become a parent, you will be imperfect too. How many of us, when we became parents, we go, oh boy, how much I appreciate my parents. Treat your parents like you want them to be treated, treating you. And one last thing for the children. When your parents have instructed you and taught you in a wise way, in a a Christ-like way, but you've chosen to be irresponsible and foolish, take responsibility. That was your fault. Don't blame parents for how your life has turned out when you have ignored the counsel or teaching Just humble yourselves, ask for forgiveness. There's grace in Christ. The family, especially men. A lot of scripture that talks about men. But I want to encourage you today uh, to act more like Christ by the help of the Spirit of God for his glory. But don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord in the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. What a blessing it is to be saved and to grow in Christ. I pray for the men here. I don't know what each one is experiencing, the young men, the old men, but we were taught today through your word that we're all to be self-controlled for your glory, for the good of a witness and adorning the gospel. And for the aged men, Lord, I pray you continue to help them to be level-headed, to be dignified and serious about serious things, to be sound in the faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance and endurance. And we're motivated to do that because of the grace that had appeared bringing salvation to us. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.